morning. Good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1, page 980 in the Pew Bible. This week we're going to only be looking at two verses. This is the opening greeting of this letter. We've now, two weeks ago, read and summarized the entire book. Uh, we are studying gospel-generated joy. We've now seen the founding of the Philippian church last week from Acts chapter 16. Well, now we dive into the details, and there are a whole lot of details. We're going to only get through two verses this morning as we look at the opening, the greeting of the letter, which is something that I think we're tempted usually just to kind of breeze through and ignore, but that would be a grave mistake in Paul's letters. This greeting has everything. This is brilliantly dense theology compacted into a few short words. Paul gives us the main ideas and the themes of the entire letter, and arguably the entire gospel, in these 37 short words. It's going to take me over 6,000 words to fail to do justice to these 37 words. There's such good stuff here. The greetings matter. Think about is how much is wrapped up in the greeting of a letter. The format of ancient letters is a little strange to us because we format our letters differently. If and we actually write letters. When's the last time someone has written a letter? Some of you in this room are old enough to remember writing letters, but that doesn't happen much these days. I had a pen pal in France when I was young, but they don't do that anymore in schools, I don't think. Maybe emails, uh, I guess. But if you think about how we did letters, it seems a little bit backwards. We have dear so-and-so, the audience, the recipient of the letter, in the opening. And then after only the, the entirety of the letter, finally at the very end, then, do we reveal the author of the letter at the bottom. Yours truly, or sincerely, so-and-so. Kind of silly, a little bit. The order seems strange. But it's not actually, because we had a postal service. We have envelopes. So when you get a letter, you see right at the beginning, who is this to? And then in the top corner, who is this from. Right? So you, you know what it's about, and you know who it's from. Same with email. We do emails now. Before you even open it, you see who this thing is from. Well, that's not how it worked with ancient letters. There was no postal service. There were no envelopes. So you always made sure and established first who the author of the letter was, and then second, who the audience of the letter was, which means that the first thing that any letter is concerned with, the main thing a greeting is concerned with, is identity. The identity of the author and the identity of the audience, to and from. And that identity shapes and forms the entire rest of the content of the letter. So as we launch into this book on joy, we're going to see that joy is dependent on identity. Joy is dependent on identity. Identity is everything. And our culture, has it not, has picked up on this fact in the last couple of years. Uh, the two big girls and I, Emma and Lila, uh, we spend three hours every Monday on my day off in the basement of Sunnyside Reform Church, just kind of 10 blocks down the street because that's where their gymnastics class meets. So every Monday, me and the girls make the walk up and down Skillman. We love Sunnyside. We love Skillman. It's just a nice little walk and it's a good time to chat with the girls. Well, two Mondays ago, we were making this walk and right before you get to 51st Street, I noticed an awning on the right that I hadn't before, and in big white block letters, the awning says, define your identity. 
Uh, it's some sort of hair place or nail place or, or something uh, like that. So again, knowing that this sermon was coming up, I saw that and I kind of logged it away in my brain, pretty excited about having a good illustration already for this day. So then this Tuesday, while working on the message, I pulled up the place on Google Street View so I could remember what street it was on. And I looked at the awning and the awning actually didn't say what I thought it had said. Right? Over the course of the week, my brain had twisted and tweaked my memory to make it say something that I wanted it to say. The awning didn't say define your identity. The awning actually says define your image. I would mixed up the words. And at first I was distraught, good illustration gone, uh, but then I realized, oh, it's an even better illustration, right? Now we can even use it even more. Let's, let's use some simple definitions. Let's say identity is who you are, and then let's say image is the world's perception of your self-projection and presentation. Uh, image is more than who you would like to be. Identity, who you are. Image, who you want to be. I am a somewhat shy and grumpy and lazy person. I don't like that about myself, so I project to you that I am somewhat outgoing and kind and hardworking, though my wife knows the truth. Right? I have an identity, but I work hard to project a certain image. Well, this hair salon is selling you the fact that you can define that image yourself simply by how you look, simply by getting a new haircut or some new nails or something. Again, I don't even know what the place is exactly. But as we shape and mold our image, we think we can then shape and mold our identity. And the owners of this hair salon aren't dumb. They know what they're doing. They've tapped into something inside all of us. We are an identity and image obsessed culture. You've probably heard the word identity politics thrown around some in the news. I read a book this week by a liberal professor over at Columbia arguing that the great failure of the left and the Democratic Party has been its almost exclusive obsession with identity politics, which is kind of just our tendency to take something about ourselves, our sex, our ethnicity, our sexual preference, or whatever it is, and then adopt political positions that advance those specific interests at the expense of broader interests uh, of, of other people. And it focuses on and emphasizes what divides us rather than what unites us. But again, we're not here to talk about identity politics. I bring that up simply to point out that people are increasingly recognizing the importance of identity. You have to have an identity. You were created to have an identity. You're wired for it. So the question then is, where does that identity come from? What identity can actually fulfill you and satisfy you and give your life meaning and purpose. The world is telling you that it, it comes from within, right? Look inside you, be who you are. You define your identity, you define your image. And yet, we've never been so confused and so divided and so lost. You must have an identity. Maybe we've been looking in the wrong place. If this book is about joy, and we're talking about joy, which we all want, and if joy is dependent on identity, then we better make sure and get that identity right. And that's what makes the beginning of Philippians so important. It's about identity. Who are you? What is the only identity that results in lasting joy? 
Paul's going to tell us very succinctly here. We're going to look at three things. And I'm not the first person to notice these three things in this greeting. Jesus, in two short verses, is mentioned three times. Each time, Jesus is preceded by a preposition that connects him to something else. Here's an identity. We have slaves of Christ Jesus. We have saints in Christ Jesus. How does that happen? Where does that come from? Only from grace and peace from Christ Jesus. That's going to be our outline. But listen, your sense of identity shapes everything. Your sense of your identity affects and directs your response to life. So let's see what Paul has to say about our identity. Let me read the passage for you. It's nice and short. Two weeks ago, our text was over 2,000 words. This week, it's 37 words. Uh, but it's a rich and wonderful 37 words because these are God's words for you today. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would bow with me and let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Father, I enjoy and I love the great privilege of, of preaching your word. Father, I also understand the gravity of, of what it is that we're doing here. Father, you are real and you are good. Father, we are not. And that causes a problem uh, for us. Father, we need you to speak into that problem. We need you to show us your solution uh, to that problem. Father, I ask now um, that I would decrease and that you would increase. I ask that your words would be front and center and clear. I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and do what I know that I am completely helpless to do. Father, use your word and work in our hearts. Father, every single one of us self-identify with something or someone in some way. Every single one of us has a tendency to find our identity in something outside of Christ. Father, show us Christ. Father, show us how he is the answer. Father, show us how everything is of him and from him and for him, Lord. Show us Christ in this time. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so if you look at it there, our first point is kind of a strange one. We're criticizing the fact that the world tends to find its identity in these other things. And here we're saying that the identity that you need is that of a slave. That takes some explaining. Uh, but first, I want you to notice a few things about Paul's reading. We have 13 letters in the New Testament that are definitely Paul's, maybe uh, 14th. And it's interesting to see what's similar and what's different in these letters. He tends to follow the same pattern. So whenever he breaks that pattern, whenever there's a variation, we should take notice. He's telling us something important. So if you want to flip around a little bit, if you look just a page to your right at Colossians, you have another greeting from Paul, also including Timothy. So the fact that Timothy is there is not that strange. Paul mentions Timothy six times in these letters in the greeting, and then two of the letters are written to Timothy himself. So eight of Paul's 13 letters involve Timothy. 
That's why we said last time that Timothy is one of the most important figures in the latter part of the New Testament. We'll look at him in great detail in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So that part of the greeting isn't unique, but don't forget that greetings are about establishing identity. Look at how Paul identifies himself in Colossians. He says, Paul, an apostle. If you go back to the left a few pages to Ephesians, you'll see the same thing in 1.1. If you go over to Galatians, you'll see the same thing in Galatians 1.1. In most of Paul's letters, he first establishes his identity as an apostle, a sent one, specifically commissioned by Jesus to speak for Jesus. So in establishing his apostleship at the outset of these letters, he's establishing his authority. It's like Paul, it's like saying, Paul, the apostle, parentheses, listen to me, right? If apostles speak for Jesus, then when apostles speak, you have to listen, right? So Paul frequently leads with his identity as an authority. Back to Philippians. That then is what is unique about Philippians. Paul, no apostle. He doesn't mention that at all in this Letter. Instead, it's Paul, identity, first thing that he wants you to read and know about him, slave. And again, I'm using that word because that's what the word means. Here's one of the few spots where the ESV, uh, I think, went a little soft on us. The, the word is doulos, uh, and the word just means slave. When I think servant, I think Jeffrey from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Yes, he works for them. He serves them, but he's part of the family. He's a lovable guy. He loves the family. He's got biting English wit. He can quit at any time if he wants to. He does that in one of the episodes. Um, but that's what a servant is when I, I think of a servant. That's not a doulos. A doulos is a slave. And fundamentally, a slave is defined by ownership. Now, we have so much baggage in our context that when we read the word slave, we cannot but help Read that through the lens of 18th and 19th century American chattel slavery. That's not what this is. This is not um, based upon the color of someone's skin. This is not about uh, kidnapping and arresting and then taking people over against their will to other places. Right? This is slavery, but it's different than the kind of slavery that we are thinking of. So try not to let that cloud what the term is that Paul is using here, but keep the one fundamental thing in mind that slavery is defined by ownership. A slave is owned by another. And that's how Paul introduces himself. That's how he identifies himself. That's the first thing that he wants the Philippians to associate with him. Paul, a slave. What's the first thing that you want people to know about you. And you know, in conversations with someone that you kind of look up to and respect, like, what's the thing that you're kind of itching, like, how can I get this into the conversation without looking really prideful and arrogant and obnoxious, right? How can I sneak in the fact that I read this many books, right? How can I sneak in the fact that this, that, or the other? What's the thing that you want people to know about you first? How do you introduce yourself? What are you most proud of? What identifies you that you want people to find out because you value that thing and you think that thing makes you look good? Paul's a slavery. I'd say that's probably, it's probably a pretty safe bet that that's not your first answer. I want you to think about Paul for a second. Paul's got to be the greatest Christian who has ever lived. He was better than you. 
He was better than me in every way. He was the first and best missionary. He was the first and best church planter. He was a great preacher. He was a loving and caring pastor. He was an unmatched evangelist. He was a brilliant theologian. He was a prolific author. And on and on and on. And not only that, as we just saw, he saw Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus, right? There's just a litany of great things about Paul that were I, Paul, I would be itching to tell you about. Hey, remember those 13 New Testament letters? That was me, right? I wrote all of those, half of the New Testament. He doesn't do that. He says, slave. How strange. Why slave? Just this language is grating, and it sounds so harsh and unappealing to us. It goes against everything within us and around us that asserts our autonomy and our independence, our goodness, our desire, and our demand to just be ourselves and to follow our heart. It sounds strange because we've been fooled into believing that freedom is found in throwing off all restraints. It's found in the freedom of self-expression and of self-definition. So for Paul to sit here and identify himself as a slave, as owned by another, and for me to stand here and encourage you to find your fundamental identity here is the height of absurdity. But it's there. It's in God's word. So we've got to do something with this. Paul, the man of joy, in spite of impossible circumstances, right? the man that we watched last week singing after he was stripped and beaten and then tortured in prison, the man who was sorrowful yet always rejoicing, identifies himself as a slave. So there must be something to this. I want what Paul has, so I'm interested in this idea. Why a slave? Well, first of all, we've got to understand that it's because you already are a slave. Every one of us is. Right? Slavery is the natural human condition. Whatever it is that you most love, whatever it is that you live for, that thing that identifies you, the Bible calls that thing an idol, and we worship Idols, we bow down to them, we, we serve them, we put such stock and value and we so revolve around them that we need them. And whatever you most need, you serve that thing. Whatever you live for, you serve. Whatever you most love, you serve. So to understand this, we first have to understand that you already are a slave. You are serving somebody. Bob Dylan saying about this all the way back in 1979. My dad's younger brother was a, just a hippie by every de definition of the word in the 60s and 70s, and God rescued him and saved him and brought him out of that. But he always loved the good music, and he always gave me the albums and the CD and introduced me to good 60s and 70s music. Bob Dylan was my Uncle Bruce's favorite musician, so I grew up with this. And in 79, Bob Dylan won a Grammy for a song, which is impressive, because if you've ever heard Dylan sing, he can't sing. So if he wins, uh, if he wins an award for singing, it's, it's pretty good. And this song was titled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Right? The first two parts of the song go, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve 
somebody. Right, so Dylan is saying that whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are always serving someone. It's impossible not to. It doesn't matter if you're the president or a rock star or a garbage man. Everyone is serving someone or something. So the question is not if you are a slave. The question is who are you a slave to? And so Paul tells us he's not just a slave. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul and identifying himself as a slave of Christ is simply saying that he is Christ's. He is owned by Christ. A slave exists for the purpose of pleasing his owner. The life of a slave is about the pleasure of the owner. Paul is saying that he is of, from, and for Christ. He is saying that Christ is his identity. A slave has no separate identity. The identity of a slave is caught up in the identity of the owner. The slave is in the owner and of the owner and for the owner. And so Paul, at the very beginning of the letter, is saying, I am Christ's, I exist for him, I serve him. So you serve somebody, make sure it's the right somebody. You have a master, make sure it is a good and kind and benevolent master. Paul is a slave, but it's the identity of his master that changes everything. Look across the page at chapter 2, verse 7. This is so good. Guys, the Bible and the gospel are so wonderful. Don't miss this. 1-1, one, one, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus. 2-5, Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who is God? Verse 7, who emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a slave. It's the same word. Paul is a slave of the slave. And the amazing thing about the slave is that he is also the God who willingly became the slave. Why? Well, he himself tells us very clearly, Mark 10, 45, for even he, Jesus, comes not to be served, but to serve. Slaves serve. How did Jesus serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. That's why Paul gladly and joyfully identifies himself first as a slave. Because in identifying himself as a slave, he is identifying himself with Jesus, who became a slave so that he could save sinners like you and like me. Christianity is slavery, but it's wonderful. Because the master that we serve is the master who first served us and saved us by dying for us. You have a master. Does he do that for you? You've got to serve somebody. There's a number of scriptures that confirm this idea. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's one of the most relevant scriptures for us in 21st century uh, materialistic, consumeristic America here in New York City. You cannot serve God and money. That's what we talked about in, in Sunday school. You can't serve two masters. 
But the implication is that you have to serve one. So which is it? We've just read. Uh, Peter read for us Romans 6, verses 16 and 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? If you're obeying your sin, you are a slave to that sin, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you haven't been set free. You have become slaves of righteousness. And so you either are a slave of sin, and the wages of sin is death, or you are a slave of righteousness, and the wages of righteousness is eternal life. So you may think that you're free, but you're not. If you're not serving Jesus, you're serving something else. And so we have to start off with this understanding that we're all slaves. And a slave is not free. And a slave belongs to another. But that in Christ, this slavery is actually a wonderfully comforting truth. I quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism a lot. It's the one I'm more familiar with. The first question is the most famous. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But I don't quote as much from the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe I should. And maybe the second most famous catechism question of all time is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Listen to this. We're going to read this in church soon. My brother's church does this, and I love this. Here's the first question of this catechism, summarizing Christian doctrine. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily, happily willing and ready from now on to live him. See, the only comfort, this question says, is that I'm not my own, is that I'm a slave, and that I belong to Christ. But he paid for me. He set me free from sin and, and from the devil. That then makes me glad to identify with him, to live for him, and to serve him. That's an identity. Paul introduces himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Right? That's how he starts. Number two. Let's go to number two. We've seen the identity of the author. Again, that's to be our identity as well. Slaves of Christ because of the master that we serve. Right now, what's the identity of the audience? Okay. Who does Paul write this letter to? He tells us, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. So Paul is a slave writing to saints. And there's a lot of important stuff in those four short words. Saints, Christ Jesus. But sometimes it's the shortest of words that are the most important of words. Sometimes it's the shortest of words that do the most work. They are saints in Christ Jesus. In Greek, the word is in. It's 
funny. It's the same word. It's E. E-N, though. It's spelled E-N. And N is a preposition. It is a preposition that denotes position. Grammar. Time. Let's do some grammar. Uh, we're the weirdos uh, that actually educate our children at home. People think we're crazy. Uh, there's a man at the gym who identifies himself as gay that I've been talking with lately, and he, he just thinks we're insane. Uh, when I rolled into the gym back in September, I had a hospital bracelet on. He's like, hey, man, what's up? What's going on? And I told him that my wife had just had our fourth kid. He just didn't know what to do with that. Right? <laughs> Who has four kids? So he's uh, very kind. I really like the guy. He regularly asks about the kids. He asks about how my... He's very concerned about my wife with the four kids. Um, and so recently he has just said... He said to me, hey, well, you know, at least she gets a break when the older kids go to school. <laughs> <laughs> So when I told him that, in fact, she does not get those breaks, because not only do we have four kids, but we are attempting to educate those four kids ourselves at home, he just stared blankly at me, <laughs> as if I were an idiot. And, and maybe I am. Uh, but I'm pretty sure he thinks we're part of a cult. Uh, pray that he'll actually come and visit. Uh, I've been inviting him uh, forever. Uh, anyways, yeah, that was a pointless story. Now you're back. Uh, we, we homeschool. We love it. The curriculum that we use puts a lot of stuff to song for memory purposes. So ask my girls after the service, what's a preposition? And they will sing to you. A preposition relates a noun or pronoun to another word. Right? So it sticks. Right? They can define a preposition to you by singing a song for you. Right? Don't let that be the one thing you remember from this sermon. Prepositions, prepositions connect. Prepositions link. Prepositions relate words together. They govern or express relationship between two words. Look at our outline again. This is critically important. It's not just slaves, saints, grace, and peace. It's slaves of, saints, in, grace, and peace, from. Of, in, and from are the prepositions. And the prepositions are critical. The prepositions change everything. Slave is a terrible term until it's slave of Christ Jesus. Saints has become a pretty meaningless and vacuous term until it's rooted right in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace are impossible until we understand that they come only from Christ Jesus. And we were trying to determine two weeks ago the, the one big idea of Philippians, this book that is about joy, but we saw that that's not the main thing that it's about. And so we concluded that with the heart of the letter being chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, that the one big idea of Philippians is Jesus. Everything that we're talking about revolves around him and comes from him, and these prepositions make that clear. All of this is of, in, and from him. And that's why grammar is so important. That's why these tiny little prepositions are critical. We're focusing on the second one now. Look again at the second clause of verse 1. We have two nouns. We have saints and we have Christ. In is the preposition that links or relates those two words together. And it is that little in between the two words that changes everything. And guys, Paul loves this word. We should work on thinking about our identity, how Paul thinks about our identity. Right? The primary way that we refer to ourselves today is with the title Christian. The 
Bible doesn't do that. That word is only mentioned three times in the Bible, and generally it's a negative term that other people are using pejoratively against the people. The whole Bible uses the word Christian three times. Paul uses the word Christian zero times, but Paul uses the language of being in Christ about 164 times. Some people argue that it's over 200 times. So again, apparently, just based upon frequency, this in Christ business is really important. Which again, makes this arguably the most important, least talked about doctrine, which is what we call union with Christ. Paul talks about the people of God primarily as those who are in Christ. So if prepositions connect or link two words together, union with Christ is simply the idea that we are connected and that we are linked to Christ. We are in him. We are united to him. And everything else flows from this relationship. All the wonderful benefits that we get, the justification, the sanctification, the adoption, the glorification, and on and on and on. We get all of those wonderful benefits only as a result of us getting Christ. And we only get Christ as a result of our being united to him, spiritually and mysteriously connected to him in Christ. Identity. We're emphasizing how important it is. Your perspective of your identity affects everything. Do you see and meditate on and identifying yourself as being in Christ? Again, we need to re-emphasize this important doctrine. I did it once over a year ago. We need to understand union with Christ. John Murray, a great professor and theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, says that union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All the election and the predestination and the justification, all of these things are wrapped up in and subsumed under union with Christ. That sounds pretty important. And since, as always, I'm short on time and cannot do that doctrine the just as it deserves, I asked my brother-in-law, Jeff, who will be here in two weeks. He's a pastor down in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's going to come preach in two weeks, and I asked him to just do a whole sermon on union with Christ. So that's coming in two weeks. Don't miss that, which then means I can just kind of punt on that and not really address it much longer here because he's going to do it in two weeks. They are in Christ. That's important. What are they in Christ? Again, he tells us they are saints in Christ. So here's, again, another important identity marker. It doesn't help, though, that we use this word so wrongly today. So in the Catholic world, it is the super-Christians, right? It's the, it's the really, really good people that are saints, like Mother Teresa or somebody, or those who go above and beyond, those who are just better than the rest of us. And this idea has crept into our everyday language, right? So if we think of someone that's really, really nice, we'll sometimes say, oh, you know, she's, she's such a saint, right? And we just mean they're really good by that term. That's not what the Bible means by saint. In Greek, the word is just holy. There's actually no noun there. It literally says all the holies or, or the holy ones. That's a saint. And biblically, all Christians, or better yet, using our union with Christ language, all, this in, all those in Christ are saints. From the worst Christian to the best Christian, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are holy. 
and holy in the sense of being set apart. Saints are those whom God has called out and set apart. We are called out from sin and the world and then set apart for holiness and the service of God, which then connects this identity to our previous one. Saints are slaves of God and slaves of God are saints. We are set apart from evil and we are set apart for good for God. So if you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, you are a saint, you are holy, you are set apart for him. And again, that's an identity. But you have to live for something. Everything else is going to fade away and disappear and let you down. Oh, this idea of living for the creator of everything, the immortal, eternal, all-powerful, all-good God, sounds pretty appealing. Do you think of your identity in this way, as a saint in Christ. And also, by the way, if a Christian is a saint, and a saint is by definition one who is set apart for God, if you are not one who is in some way set apart, and by that I mean in some way different, somewhat like Christ, somewhat growing in holiness, then by definition of the word, you just cannot be a saint. As we're about to see, all this only comes by grace. We are not good people so that we can then become saints. God makes us saints, which then does increasingly make us good, or at least in my case, like every so slowly, increasingly good or slightly better, maybe. He's making us into holy people. God's saving grace is also a setting apart grace, and his setting apart grace is also a transforming Are you set apart? Are you different? And if not at all, then on what basis do you have to claim to be in Christ? Christians are saints. Saints are in Christ. And so saints are like Christ. Again, they, they love Jesus. They love the things of Jesus. They love the people of Jesus. Is that the case? for you. There's just a whole lot of people out there who would call themselves Christians, but give no evidence of actually being slaves of Christ and saints in Christ. Maybe the biblical definitions could be a little helpful to us. It's easy to project an image, but sometimes it seems that there is no matching identity. Examine yourself to see if you can honestly call yourself a slave of Christ and a saint in Christ. We'll see how that comes about, though, here in a second. So hold that thought. Do you notice one other thing there? Real quick. The identity of the audience is the saints in Christ Jesus. Keeps going. Who are at Philippi. Now, I promise I'll stop on the grammar in a second. At is another preposition. But do you know what the word is in the Greek? It's in. Again. It's the same word. So literally... What Paul writes is he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Location is important. We've just seen their spiritual location in Christ. He's now mentioning their physical location. They are in Philippi. Where you are, in large part, determines who you are. So where are you? We are right now in New York City. 
And that shapes us and informs us in some way, for, for better or for worse. You are in a certain job, and that's going to have an effect on you. You are in a certain people group, and that makes you part of who you are. All of those things are good things, but not the main thing. And so when we make those the main thing, they can quickly become a bad thing. Or maybe right now, you are in suffering, or you are in debt, or in a failing marriage, or in crisis, whatever it may be, that's going to have profound implications for your identity. And when you let that thing take over and be your identity, when you let that place become your primary place, you are going to be in trouble. Place matters. Where are you? What are you in? Your physical place matters. But sometimes the physical place can be pretty bad. And that's why you desperately need to see and focus on the spiritual place. That's why, though identity is in some way affected by physical place, you cannot root it there in anything physical. Identity must come from something more stable and more secure. It must come from your spiritual place or that identity will let you down must see yourself first and foremost as in Christ, no matter where else you find yourself. So that's the identity of the audience of the letter, and that's the identity that you need. Are you a saint in Christ? And I just don't have time to get into the rest of part of that phrase. Notice also, this is strange, he doesn't do this anywhere else. He writes there to the overseers and the deacons. Remember, overseers are just the, the pastors, the, the elders. They all mean the same thing. Why does he do that here? Yeah, people argue about it. We're not entirely sure. It's probably to emphasize the leaders of the church in the eyes of the church to encourage them, to, to look to them, and to listen to them as their leaders in this talk about humility and unity and some of these things. So he's saying, hey, look, here's these guys. Uh, use them, depend upon them, follow them as they follow Christ. Not entirely sure. But don't miss, let's emphasize this, let's get my plug in here. Don't miss that it's overseers plural. It's always plural. Not a single shred of biblical evidence exists for the idea of a single head, a single leader over a church. Whenever pastors and elders are mentioned in Scripture, it's always in the plural. That then means that we are somewhat out of line with the biblical design for church order and leadership. Okay, this is why we have to address this problem. For your sake and for my sake, we desperately need other men to serve alongside me as pastors and as elders because that's how it's always done in the New Testament. And that is my first and foremost prayer for Woodside Community Church right now. We are somewhat handicapped by the fact that you are stuck only with me. We need other men who can come and serve alongside as pastor. So as I'm praying for this, you be praying for this and you be praying for me. He writes to the overseers, plural. Paul says, go in and establish elders, plural, always, every time. So that's what we need here at Woodside, elders, plural. Last point. We'll be quick. We've seen our identity as slaves of Christ and saints in Christ. Now we see the source 
of that identity. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, Paul could desire and request nothing greater for them and for us than this. There is nothing else you need outside of grace and peace. There is no identity that you construct. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care how perfect your selfies are. I don't care how good your job is or your resume is or whatever it is. There is no identity that you can construct that can compete with the one that comes from grace and peace. Grace. Grace is like, grace is like the, the, the sum total of God's activity towards his people. It's all found there in the word grace. It is the very heart and soul of the New Testament message. It summarizes the gospel. We said from Acts 16.31 that the summary imperative of the entire New Testament was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Well, we could make a case that this could be the summary indicative of the whole New Testament is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else Everything we've talked about up until this point flows from here. So Paul begins with grace. And peek over, peek over at how he ends also in 4.23. The very last thing that he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Right, so it's grace at the beginning and it's grace at the end. Yeah, which means that everything sandwiched in between depends upon grace. The gospel is grace, right? Grace is God's favor. It is God's love given to sinners, given those to, uh, to those who do not deserve it or who do nothing to earn it or do not even seek it and choose it. And if that's what grace is, that makes grace the best thing in the world and the one thing that you need. Guys, the thing about trying to establish and assert your own identity is that it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I, I, I know because I'm still struggling to try and do it. You have to work and you have to strive so hard to prove to others and to yourself that you matter and that you have value and that you're beautiful or that you're, you're good or that you're intelligent or that you have it all together. And you do that by working hard to create and then project some sort of image of the identity that you think is good and it never stops. And it never ends. And it's never enough. But grace is different. And grace is so wonderfully, precisely because of the natural identity that every single one of us is trying so hard to cover up. Like why do we try to project these images so much? Because our identity outside of Christ is such a train wreck. What is that identity? Well, we hinted at it in point number one. If you're not a slave of Christ... You're still a slave now only to sin. We read it in Romans chapter six. Jesus says in John 8, 34, that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin outside of Christ. That's your identity. Ephesians 2, 1 says that you were or are dead in your trespasses and sins. Since the wages of sin is death, anyone who stays a slave to sin dies eternally in that slavery. Or how about Romans 5? Romans 5 is a wonderful passage. It's not just talking about us and who we are. It can be a little discouraging. Verse 6, our natural identity. It calls us 
ungodly. Verse 10, it calls us enemies of God. And we've got to see that and own that identity because that's what makes the grace part so amazing. Because listen to the rest of those two verses that reveal our terrible identity. 5-6 is about that we're ungodly. Well, the whole verse says, for a while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 10 says we're enemies. That stinks. Oh, though, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's grace. It's not clean up your act and be good enough and you better be good so that God will choose you for his team. No, it's that you're ungodly and that you're an enemy of God. Right? The ungodly shown the love of God through the death of his son. That's grace. Enemies of God reconciled and made sons of daughters by the death of his son. That's grace. If you can see what it is that your natural identity deserves, death and hell, but then what you were offered in Christ, forgiveness and life and reconciliation and adoption, the opportunity to go from dead to alive, from hell to heaven, from enemy of God to child of God. That's what changes you. That's what will give you this joy that we're all looking for. That's the identity that you need. You were this, but now you're this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you, but now you're washed, you're sanctified you're in Christ and the contrast between those two identities is what brings the joy grace is what you need grace in Christ is the only way for the identity as children of God that we forfeited with our sin the one identity that we are created for to then be restored and if you can see that it's all grace when you deserved only the opposite it changes everything in grace, God gives Jesus. And in Jesus, God gives life where only death was deserved. And that's what the gospel is about. And that grace also brings about, he says, the peace of God. Now, objectively, in Christ, we have peace with God. Subjectively, because we are now at peace with God, we can then experience the peace of God. And that peace, which Paul will tell us in chapter 4, verse 7, surpasses all understanding and guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound wonderful? Peace. Aren't you tired? I am tired. Like the, the, the constant war and the struggle within, right? the doubt, the fear, when I forget these Things, when I forget this wonderful, unassailable identity that I have in Christ, I can then so stress and strive to prove myself. If I get a little more passionate in my sermon, if I preach a little bit longer, if I get more excited, then I'll prove to them that I'm worth it so I can go home in peace and rest and feel good about myself. That kind of war and anxiety within when I forget these things. But guys, I can never prove myself good enough because I'm not good enough. I'm not, and you're not either. And so when I forget these things, I allow myself to be beset with these anxieties, and I can think, and I can talk, and I can question myself into all kinds 
of circles. This peace is what I so desperately crave. Peace is, is it's the shalom of the Old Testament. It's, it's complete spiritual well-being. Right? Peace is the declaration that we've been singing in our new song the last couple of weeks that all is well. And it is this peace that is the foundation of the joy that we're all seeking and that we're going to be looking at throughout the course of this letter. Grace is what makes all well. Peace is the fact that all is well. And then joy is the sense and the experience of the fact that all is well. Grace produces peace, produces joy. Ah, I want that. You should want that. And Paul wants us to see here, with the help of these little prepositions, that all of that is only of, in, and from Christ. The reason you haven't found it is because you're looking at all of these other places. The reason you feel miserable after indulging in whatever that thing is, or the five hours uh, straight on Facebook, or the kind of the whatever, and you just don't quite get that feeling that you thought it was going to give you of fulfillment, it's because it's found only in Christ. Your experience of peace and joy is dependent upon your identity. And this is the only identity that will do it. Are you a slave of Christ? Are you a saint in Christ? Have you received the grace and peace from Christ? That's where you'll find the joy. That's where you'll find the identity that you're looking for. And if you haven't found it yet, Jesus says, come. It's come to Christ. He says, come to me. You are weary. You are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest and peace and joy, and an identity. Trust him. Come to him in repentance and faith, and he will give you rest. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for how quickly we forget that all of these things are found in him. Father, forgive us for how foolishly we can look to the silliest of things to find identity and joy and meaning and value when we have the most wonderful of things just here staring us in the face. Father, may we never leave that which is so good. May we never leave the substance to go after the shadow. May we never leave Christ uh, to seek these things in the world and in ourself or in, in whatever it is. Uh, that we invest our, our love and our affection and our, and our meaning. Uh, Father, forgive me for forgetting these things so easily. Uh, Father, I'm so thankful uh, for Jesus. I'm so thankful that your faithfulness is great, uh, Father, because ours is so weak and so fluctuating and so changing. We so thank you that being in Christ is not about our own goodness or about our own effort or about our own work. We thank you that it's all grace. Uh, from Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to see that fact. Help us to delight in that fact. Help us to rest in that fact. Uh, Father, show us Christ. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.